God makes it very clear in Scripture that He desires to be known. He desires for us to understand Him. So therefore, He reveals His nature and character through Scripture. And what we have the responsibility to do is to look for those imprints. What can we know about Him? And then therefore, how can that translate to our life and how we carry out our daily activities? I said when we started the study in Revelation quite some time ago, what you believe about God determines what you do next. Remember that phrase? Now, we were trying to understand God's activity in the world, in the future and in the present. So we framed it by saying, what you believe about God determines what you do next. Now, I would frame that around the Revelation study. I would also say that around the John study, but I'm going to twist it a little bit for this study in John. I would say, how you view God determines what you do next. That will make much more sense to you as we move on. But how you personally view God determines how you carry out your daily activities, what you choose to do with the course of your life, whom you choose to marry, jobs you choose, colleges you choose, even investments, how you choose to use your money, how you view God determines what you do. So just let that frame this study, and I'll come back to it again. When I first uh, went into college, I was convinced that I was supposed to be an artist. This is before I was convinced I was supposed to be a pilot, okay? So I I majored in art um, at the very, very early onset of college. Uh, I did a lot of it in high school and in in junior high, and my parents paid for specialty classes for me to go to, Um, not because I was a special ed student, but because they were, never mind, um, trying to develop my abilities, Okay, And so they kept encouraging me when I got to college to take on this aspect of studying art. So I thought, I'll be a commercial artist. And when I got to college, I found out how good artists really are that are better than me. (laughs) And it was was very humbling. Um, You know, in your own little world, in your own little fish pond, you can be a big fish until you get into the bigger world of the university and you realize, well, there's people a whole lot better than I am at this. So I decided, I'll be a pilot. (laughs) Made that switch moving from art over into aviation. So in the midst of my studies of art, though, I really, really loved art, especially art history. And there's one particular artist I wanted to share a painting with you this morning so that you could see his work as well. This one just really speaks to me. It's from a Russian artist from the 1800s. His name is Vasily Polonov. And I want you to see this work that he captured on canvas. This is his depiction of Jesus at the Sea of Galilee. He's got the Clothing proper, he's showing him as a rabbi, dressed in traditional Jewish clothing, walking with a stick, and we read in Scripture that Jesus went to quiet, lonely, desolate places by himself. And so Vasily captured this in the 1800s, this Jewish teacher by himself walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It speaks to me about Jesus' capacity to find time alone. We called this series The Portrait. You may have received the postcards in the mail this week or saw the banner out on Hazlitt Road, or perhaps you got the little bookmark this morning when you came in. Because the portrait is what's represented here in this gospel, this book of John. Jesus paints a portrait of God the Father, and it's an amazing piece of artwork. 
John starts out with this blank canvas, this canvas set against the backdrop of the universe, helping us to understand creation, trying to help us understand the source of it. And as we move through the book of John, we see these wide brushstrokes that Jesus, the Creator, Jesus, the Word, Jesus, the Son of God, begins to paint an image, creating a portrait, a canvas, if you will, as to what God the Father looks like. And with each color, with each hue, with each shadow and shade, we get a better understanding of God the Father. And it's an awesome, awesome image that he captures for us. God's nature and his character jump off the screen. And it comes before us in this text in such a way that we can step back and say, like Thomas, my Lord and my God, a brand new understanding, a capacity to see things that we hadn't seen before. This is the way it's literally referred to in John 1.18. Look with me up on the screen. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Well, who is the only begotten God? Begotten God is Jesus. Bosom is an ancient way of saying very close to, intermingled, interlocked with. So it says here that Jesus, who is intermingled, locked in with God the Father, has explained him. Exgeomai is the word that's used there for explain. And we use the word ex a lot in our today. We, use, we have exit signs on buildings. You see exit there. The first ex, it comes out of the Greek language, means to come out of. Or like Exodus, the book of Exodus in the Bible, the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. The exodus. So exgeomai is the explanation of God. And it means to unfold. So we see in this text that Jesus' role, one of the things that he is doing on earth is he's explaining God the Father, unfolding him before us. So what kind of an explanation does he give us? He gives us an explanation of the likeness of God. In order to understand that, we can go way back to the beginning, back to Genesis. Let me take you up on the screen and show you Genesis 1.26, in which we start at the very beginning, the first time you see the word likeness appear. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So this first word that's used here, image, is the word salem. And it means shadow or shade. This first word that's used, a resemblance, a representative figure, like we would use the word shadow. It's not really the person, but it's a shadow of the person. So God's saying, let's make him in our image, in our shade, our likeness. There's a resemblance there. But he also uses the word likeness. This is the word demuth. It means the shape or the fashion or the similitude. Now, this word has a little bit more of a concrete meaning to us because it actually represents the hands and the feet and the eyes. Now, we understand when we look at Scripture, God is a spirit according to what Scripture says. But yet we're given these physical concrete terms 
in order to help us understand God's nature, what he looks like. So when scripture says the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro across the whole earth, we don't know if he literally has eyes, but it says when he roams with his eyes across the whole earth, he looks for people who are loyal to him. It talks about the arm of God, the right hand of God, the feet of God. So we get this imagery here of the image and the likeness of God. And he says, I'm going to take that image and likeness and I'm going to impress it upon my creation so that they reflect me. He didn't do that to the animals, you understand. And he didn't do that to the mountains. He said, I'm going to take mankind and make them a reflection of me. So when people see you, do they see the likeness of God? Do they see the imagery? Absolutely, yes. When you look across the entire surface of the planet and you see other human beings, you are seeing the image of God, the likeness of God. More importantly, when people see you as believers in Jesus Christ, do they see Jesus in you? I think that's one of the highest compliments we can pay to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. When we say, I see Jesus in you. I see the characteristics of the creator, this redeemer, this one full of grace. I see Jesus in you. That's a huge compliment to someone. So throughout this journey, as we're moving through this book of John, this fascinating, undiscovered book in the way that we're going to discover it, we're going to learn things about God, the creator, and God, the son, as he moves across our planet, his planet, what he created. We'll discover new things about him. We're going to see him speak to his creation, literally calling life back out of death. We're going to see him heal people in ways that are just absolutely mind-boggling. We're going to see him walking on water. We're going to see him on the mountainsides and sitting down with people and eating meals. And we get to see this God unfold on this canvas. And ultimately, we get to see him as the conqueror. So we get more than a glimpse, and I know that's what your artwork says, that we want to see a glimpse of God. The postcard had it and the bookmark had it. And I should have said more than a glimpse because Moses and Elijah and Job and Jonah, they got glimpses of God. But we get to see God painted before us by Jesus. And at the end of the study, we'll have the portrait, the image that Jesus painted before us. So let me give you a little bit of background before we jump into the first verse, a little bit of the biography of John. How do we know, for instance, that John actually wrote this book? And we're talking about the disciple John, not John the Baptist. This is the disciple John, a young man, probably in his mid-20s, when he was following Jesus, left his fishing trade and began following Jesus the Messiah. How do we actually know he's the one that wrote this? Well, here's the first piece of information that might be helpful for you. It's extra-biblical information. It goes beyond Scripture. Um, When John was an aged man in his 90s, and, and younger than that, actually, he had individuals who followed him, who were his disciples, people that he trained in the ways of Christ. One of those individuals' names was Polycarp, very unusual name, P O L Y C A R P, Polycarp. Polycarp had an individual under him. His name was Irenaeus. And Irenaeus wrote something very specific about John to help us understand that John actually authored this book. This is archaeological evidence. Look with me up on the screen. This is a quote from Irenaeus. 
John, the disciple of the Lord, who also had leaned upon him, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. Now, Irenaeus apparently wrote that sometime around 200 A.D., probably a little bit earlier than that. He was a third or second-generation individual from John, the disciple. Now, that's not quite enough information because archaeologically, individuals really started to challenge whether or not you could take what was written here as being from John, the disciple, especially in the 1800s. In the 1800s, with the rise of Darwinism around the world, around the entire globe, individuals started taking shots at the authority of Scripture. And as the 1800s moved into the 1900s, up until 1935, there were individuals who said, this was written by an individual called John the Elder, probably in 285 A.D. This is not written by John who followed Jesus. Therefore, you can't take these things that are written here emphatically. Until in 1935, there was a piece of fabric that was discovered in Egypt. And I want you to see this. This It's just a photographic image of that piece of fabric. This is a capture of an image of a piece of fabric that was found in a very remote area of Egypt, and it's actually the Greek language as directly copied from John chapter 18, word for word. Here's what's significant about that. This was dated back to 105 A.D., so there's no way John the Elder could have written it in 285 A.D. if it had been originally crafted way back before 100 A.D., And given time for this document to move around the world and make it into Egypt, this dates perfectly to the period of time in which John, the disciple of Jesus Christ, in his 90s, began to write this document. Now, we understand that it appears from evidence in Scripture and from archaeological evidence that John most likely wrote this book after he wrote the book of Revelation. And that's very significant to understand because he had an experience with God, with Jesus, seeing the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then as an aged man in his mid-90s, perhaps a little bit later, living up to the time of, of Caesar Trajan, he wrote or dictated this book. Now, you remember from our study in Revelation that John had been banished to an island. He's living out in the Mediterranean Ocean in this island called Patmos. He had this experience with Jesus. He wrote the book of Revelation. And then when Caesar Domitian dies, John is released from prison. And John gets on a ship, sails across the Mediterranean, finds his way to a town called Ephesus. And in Ephesus, he begins to write this book. Now, we understand that John mellowed a little bit over time as he grew older. He was known as the apostle of love, but he still had a fiery temper. He's an individual who actually said to Jesus, do you want me to call fire down from heaven and destroy the Samaritans? You remember that illustration? If you grew up in church, you remember that, that he's trying to call fire down to destroy an entire city because he had a fiery temper. We also understand that as he mellowed over time, he never lost his passion for truth. Here's another extra biblical quote I would like you to see just before we jump into the first verse, and this comes from John's personal understudy, an individual by the name of Polycarp. A polycarp had written something specific about John. Look with me up on the screen, and this is when they're living in Ephesus. John, the disciple of the Lord, going to bathe at Ephesus and perceiving the heretic Serinthus was within, rushed out of the bathhouse without bathing, exclaiming, let us fly, lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Serinthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. And you see him, he's in his 90s. Let's fly, we're going to get out of here. 
Serenthus was a heretic who just distorted the word of God. But even in his 90s, he had this passion for truth. So I'm going to encourage you to use your imagination as we work through this text because John is so great as a wordsmith, and he paints pictures. Not only does Jesus give us this imagery of God, but John paints with words, and he'll take your imagination captive and leave you with thoughts you never knew before. He uses imagery like light and darkness, shadow, hue, color, richness, texture. You understand that there's a relationship here that we're going to find in the book of John. The relationship is as John the younger man, okay? So John the elder in his 90s is writing about John the younger man in his 20s and his relationship with his teacher, with his master, the one he calls in his book, the rabbi. We believe John might have been the youngest of the disciples, probably somewhere in his mid-20s. And he's looking back to his youth. And then he does something amazing. He goes beyond his own youth, and he goes back to the beginning of time, back before creation. And that's how verse 1 starts out. At the very beginning, before anything existed, John takes us back into eternity. Now, I know some of you are writing notes down. I just want to explain to you because of the way that we do these studies here. Um, you'll get a full set of notes next week. I'm going to copy off the entire message for you, which this morning is really going to be very short. We're only going to get into a couple verses because of the other things that have taken place in the service. I don't want to go too far, and you'll understand why in just a minute. But next week when you come in, you'll have a set of notes to fill in the blanks like you normally do, plus a copy of the notes from this week's teaching so that this really is something that you can put together. Here's what I'm going to encourage us to do, church. Read this stunned. Read this with awe in your mind because it's phenomenal. This is going to make for some really interesting lunchtime conversation. Let's go to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So immediately we get this parallel between Genesis 1.1 and John 1.1. In the beginning is the architect. In the beginning. Beginning is the word arche. And we use it for the word architect today. But look with me up on the screen for arche. The source or the origin, a commencement, or the chief one in authority. At the first estate, the power, the principality, the rule. Now that definition that we have there is true. Both are true of the creator. He is both the creator and the ruler. So it says the one who is the originator, the origin, and the one who is the ruler. I want to really focus in on that word origin because this is the way that it's used. RK refers to the beginning of everything. So here's how it's used in Revelation. This is the way you might be familiar with it from our study. Revelation 3.14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the arche of the creation of God. You understand, this is a title of Jesus. So this is a title that's being given of Jesus all the way up in Revelation. It's say, saying, literally, Jesus is the arche the beginning, the originator of everything. You understand? Jesus already exists before time began. This is what it's literally saying. He's not a created being. And this is what's really important, church. 
This is where Muslims, those who follow Islam, those who follow Mormonism, differentiate with you and I. They would say Jesus was a real being who actually lived, but he was a created being, an angel. But that's not what my text says. It says he's the arche, the originator of everything. And therein lies the great difference. Whatever is created had to have a creator. Would you not agree? And so this creator had to exist from before things were created. So we have this one that was pre-existent before time. Time began with the creation of universe. Absolutely started. Whatever before that is eternal. So Jesus, at which point he created everything, lived before the creation, is the creator, the RK. So this very first statement in the very first three words, first five words, we have definitive proof that Jesus is deity. Only God can be uncreated, can be eternal. So Jesus is eternal. This is the way it's stated in Colossians. You'll see it up on the screen. For by him all things were created, him meaning Jesus, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There was a point in which the universe did not exist. Whether you're an atheist, whether you are a person who follows Islam, whether you are an individual who is not raised in the church at all, everybody has an understanding. There is a point in time at which the universe did not exist, and it came into existence. There was never a point in time when God did not exist, and that will keep you up at night. How far back does this go? What existed before that? He is the self-existent one. That's why when Moses said, I want to know your name. I want to know my name. I am that I am. Nothing exists without me. I am everything. I am everlasting to everlasting. I am who I am. I just am. Can you define that? No way. And so that's why Moses said, how am I going to explain that to Egypt and Israel? The great I am. It does, I, don't, I don't get it. So he's from everlasting to everlasting. David got this. David wrote this down in the book of Psalms, first, uh, chapter 90. He said, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's your God that we're talking about here. The one in control of everything with no beginning. You understand why we're only going to get through three verses this morning? Okay? This is just profound. We're only through the first five words. So it's going to move a little bit quicker now. So the next thing he says is, was the word. In the arche, in the origin, was the word. We understand that God created through his word. We mean big W. God commanded and it was. That's what the text says, Psalm 33, 9. He commanded and it stood fast. So God created. He established The word that's used here, was the word. I want you, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, to circle the word was. I'm going to give you the Greek word that replaces it. You can write right above it. The word was should be replaced or still used there, but just right above it, the word E-I-M-I, E-M-I or M-I, if you want to pronounce it that way. And here's what's so significant about that. It describes a continuing action in the past. 
that led to an event in the future. This is a very important verb, and it, it phrases this entire study. Because something happened in the past, a continuing action, it led to an activity in the future. This is the way that probably easiest to get it in your mind. Think of a politician who is elected into office. Someone achieves office, they're serving in office, but something had to happen to get them into office. There was a political campaign that allowed them this continuing action in the past that led to this event in the future. That's the way MI is used here. Now, here's why it's significant. John could have used the word genomai, which means became. He could have said, in the beginning, became the word. That's what the Muslims believe. That's what the Mormons believe. In the beginning, became the word. He was created. But he didn't use that word. He used the word M-I, E-I-M-I. In the beginning was the word, this continuing action, big W, this one called the Logos. Now, Remember where John is at. John is in this city called Ephesus, the center of philosophical thinking for the Greek world. A very significant point. And he's in the midst of the walls of Ephesus when he writes this down about this logos being arche. Here's why that's really important. Going way back before the time of Jesus, 600 years before Jesus, there's this Greek individual by the name of Heraclitus, and he lived in this town called Ephesus. And he came up with this concept that with all this order, disorder and chaos in the world, there must be a central force of some type that holds it all together. And to very shortly just put it in a context in the way that you can understand it, he said that force that holds everything together is called the Logos, the Word. So Heraclitus came up with this idea 600 years before, and he taught it to all the Greek-thinking people. It was so much a part of the average Greek's thought that it was the most important principle for their thought process about how everything originated. They didn't believe it to be a personal being, though. They thought it to be a force, some type of an entity that brought order out of disorder. So he used this word, logos, Look with me up on the screen. Logos, something said, including thought. Also, reasoning. That's the literal Greek definition for it. Thought, words spoken, reasoning, all put together. So Heraclitus taught this to Plato, to Socrates, to Cicero, to Alexander the Great. It carried on down through the generations. So this was part of the Greek thought, except they believed it was an impersonal force, just something that existed. Now, the Greeks didn't have a lock on this thinking. The Hebrews also believed in this logos, the word of God. So this was, big W was not new thinking to them when John wrote this down. In the beginning was the logos, because they believed that everything came from God's word. However, they believed the word represented God's actions, not that it was a being, but that it was the activity of God. And so when God shows up and says, by his word, he created... They see that's the word of God. And when God showed up and talked to Abraham and said, God, Abraham, I'm going to make this covenant with you, they understood that was the word of God. Look with me on the screen, Genesis 15:1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying, do not fear, Abraham, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. By the word of the Lord, he gave the Ten Commandments. By the word of the Lord, he is the cause of creation. So they got that. They were able to put these pieces together. 
together. Here's a way that it really relates to you. Look with me on the screen, 2 Samuel twenty two thirty one. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tested. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord, and who is a rock besides our God? God is my strong fortress. Why is this so significant to us? Because the word of God said, I will redeem you. I am sending my son to die for you so that you might come be with me. That's the word of the Lord also. And so we've got this big stake in the ground in which we need to camp also on this big W, the Logos. So we understand it, though, to be more than just this impersonal force or more than just God's activity. We understand it to be a person, the eternal preexistent one. That's why John makes this amazing transition which had to blow away the Greeks when he says the word was with God. So, in the beginning was the Word. And the next phrase, the Word was with God. Now, the Greeks believe the same thing, that the Logos was really old. But John goes on to develop it and says that this Word that was with God was also in personal relationship with God. This word that's with is another word that you could circle in your text because it literally has this meaning. It means face-to-face relationship. The English doesn't really bring it out the way that it's captured in the Greek. But it means literally if you sat down and had a face-to-face intimate conversation with someone, that's the word with that's used here. And the way it's explained is prostantheon. We can't capture it the way that they understood it. But it means intimate, personal, loving relationship. Jesus personally spoke to this issue. It's a fairly long passage that I want to share with you. John 17, 1, Jesus used this word about this intimate relationship. Look with me on the screen so you can follow along. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may, give, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Look at verse 4. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you. When? Before the world was. This is astounding for the people of this period of time and for us as well when we have a planet made up of individuals who say, no, Jesus was a created being. He's not the redeemer of the world. He's not God. But that stands directly in the face of Scripture. And church, this is a profound reality. Jesus, who had intimate relationship with God the Father, humbly gave it all up to come for you So the RK, the originator, the originator of the entire universe left the intimate relationship and emptied himself so that he could redeem us. Overwhelming to me. So John takes the next step and he says, the word was God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So not only did he have this face-to-face fellowship with God, but also the word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. So that's why Jesus said in John 14, 6, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You're looking at him. John 14, 6, he that has seen me has seen the Father. That's why you saw in Revelation when Jesus showed up and said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It couldn't be more clear. So here's our last verse for today, verse 3. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. I can't fully develop that this morning because of time, and so just to lightly touch on it, we'll come back to it next week. This is literally saying in the Greek that Jesus is the agent of creation. Everything channeled through him. He's the creator of all. Only God can create, correct? And only God can be uncreated. He, in other words, he has no beginning. So literally, this is saying the one who created everything has no beginning whatsoever. I, I know this is really heady stuff, but it's so important to establish this study as we move forward. The rest of it will move much, much faster so that we get a really good framework of understanding who is this one that John's writing about. So instead of this word, imi, that I told you about earlier, the verb, E-I-M-I, he now uses the word, ginomai, meaning it became into being. And he's talking about you. You came into being. Look look at the verse again, verse 3. All things came into being. You're the things. The ginomai, everything arrived. Our present world is radically different from the original created world, church. What God created, he said, everything was good and perfect. What we have around us today is not good and perfect, and it's the result of sin. The catastrophic fall and the cataclysmic events of the flood. So those two things put together changed everything, not only for the human race, but also for the created planet. So we're told in Romans that our planet, this creation, it groans It gutturally groans, waiting for the return of the king. Look with me up on the screen, Romans 8, 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It took John more than three years to really understand who Jesus is. And he didn't want that to be the case for you. It took him until he was an aged man in his 90s to be able to articulate what you've just seen in three verses. And he didn't want that to be the case for you. So we get it in the first three verses in a half-hour teaching here. This one, this archaic, the architect of everything, is your redeemer, your friend, the one who hung on the cross, the same one that you're going to see on the mountainside walking with people, turning the water into wine, calling life back, the man at the wedding. That's God. And the one who hung on the cross, it's God. So that's why he's established this for us. Do you see this and feel the weight of this? That's why he said it right in the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Logos was with God. 
The Logos was God. He was in the beginning, and nothing came into being that was not made. It had to come in through him. He made everything. So John understood his audience and who he was writing to, and he's writing to the audience of today because we live in a world church that is utterly confused with this, and we feel the weight and the wonder of this. Four things I want to send you out with this morning, and it'll be in your notes next week, things that I just grabbed out of it that I saw. We see, first of all, the time of his existence, literally before all time, in the beginning, before everything began. Number two, the essence of his identity. The word was God. You can't get simpler than that, and you cannot get weightier than that. A child can understand that. But yet theologians have wrestled with this for eons. Number three, the word was with God. And there is the heart of the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. The word was with God. So this personal, knowable logos is also God. And number four, this is what we're going to look at a little bit further next week, the creation. All things were made through him. Everything. Everything that we know was made through Jesus. So here's why that's so significant for us. Jesus is your maker. He is also your redeemer. The one who made you hung on the cross and willfully gave up life. This one that we just celebrated with communion. It is so profound that it, it's just overwhelming me what it means for our series together as we study this moving forward. And each week we're going to gain more and more knowledge about this one called Jesus, the Son of God, and God the Father as these brushstrokes develop for us. So here's my question for you. Do you want to know God? Do you want to see him personally the way that Jesus painted the portrait of him? Come back and join us each week. And then this little bookmark thing that you received this morning, had it made in the form of a ticket. Uh, Tim Bepler did the design on this here at our church. He did a great job with it. This is in the form of a ticket so that you can use it to invite friends this week. Because next week as we launch into understanding the creation, I think for individuals who don't understand who this Jesus is or have a lot of questions about the Bible, a lot will be explained for them. So take this. There's more of them out on the table this morning. Use them, pass them out this week. Invite people to join us on this journey and they together with you can see God painted right before our very eyes. It's a phenomenal study and I'm really looking forward to it. So join me in prayer as we commit this to God. Father, we thank you for the time that we've been able to spend together this morning. We've been able to sing to you. Thank you for the gift of music. We've been able to worship you through communion through this thing called the Lord's table in which you gave us a specific way to remember what you did. Father, we're also able to learn about you. And now we step out into a world who knows nothing about you. So God, I ask for my brothers and sisters in this room, those who who understand this, that you would make them so bold that they'd be willing to engage in conversations they've never engaged in before because we do really live among a people who are wondering. I know, Father, there's those who are obstinate against it, but for the most part, most of your creation is just trying to figure it out. 
So God, make your people willing to be bold and empower us with your Holy Spirit. God, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Have an excellent week.